You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have Joseph Pierce to talk about his most recent book, Argentine Intimacies. You're a professor at Stony Brook. Can you tell people about what you teach and what you do? Sure. I am associate professor in the Department of Hispanic Languages and Literature, and I teach Latin American literary and cultural studies, um, 19th century uh, literature, and queer theory. So a lot of my work has to do, broadly speaking, with gender, sexuality, and kinship in Latin America, and also uh, among indigenous communities in Latin America and, and the United States. And your most recent book, Argentine Intimacies, is about non-traditional relation. I guess non-traditional. Well, what's the best way to describe it? <laughs> I think it's it's interesting because the book is very much about traditional family, uh, traditional understandings of the family. And one of the things that I've tried to do in the book is approach normative families through a queer lens. So a lot of what queer studies has done over the past 20 years has been to seek out alternative family forms or alternative forms of of relating uh, between people. And that's fine, and that's been really important among activists and artists. But one of the things that I that I felt was left out of that conversation was how families that are ostensibly read as normative actually are not as straightforward or as as normative as, as they seem. So um, the book is is an attempt to look squarely at one such normative family in the late 19th century. How did you find the Bunch family? The Bunge family. So the Bunge family. Yeah. Okay. They're a, a, they're the last name is of German origin, and so they were German immigrants to Argentina in the 18th century. And they are one of the most uh, prominent families intellectually in the 19th century um, and in the early 20th centuries, but they were... They have been consistently left out of um, literary histories in part because the the work that they produced was very conservative, white supremacist. It was not particularly <laughs> stylistically innovative. And so, you know, I, I often say I don't actually like reading a lot of their work, but it's important and we need to be able to read the work of white supremacists and of um, homophobic people and of ultra-traditional Catholic um, writers at, at just as, as we need to be able to read some of the more um, avant-garde um, expressions of gender and sexual dissidents. How did you come across their archives? Oh, that's an interesting story. So, you know, I write about four members of this family, Carlos Octavio, uh, Delfina, Julia, and Alejandro Bunge. 
Carlos Octavio is is fairly well known, uh, but the other three of a generation of eight in total are are lesser known. And I could f- you can find references to Carlos Octavio, and and my original idea was to try to look at what happens um, when members of a family, two members or more of a family, are artists. And so the original idea was to look at. Um, for example, Eduarda and Julio, and, sorry, Eduarda and Lucio Mancilla, who are two writers in the 19th century, a sister and a brother, uh, Borges and his sister, uh, Victoria Ocampo and Silvina Ocampo. So I was looking at pairs of writers or pairs of, of artists. Um, and then I came across this family and I, and I thought to myself, they are so weird. They are so contradictory. And I, and I started looking more and more. And one of the things that I realized was that they had a voluminous archive of intimate writing, of letters, of diaries, and of various forms of um, keepsakes, uh, a family album as well. And so I took a, an exploratory research trip to, to Buenos Aires several years ago and was able to meet uh, the granddaughter of of some of the people that I was interested in writing about, and she, uh, Lucia Galvez, she's a historian, and she has kept all of the family archive, like in her living room, and so she was excited that someone else was interested in talking about her family with her, and we became, I don't know if friends is the right word, but but we shared a common interest in what the family is what it could be, what it was. And so we spent several hours discussing the archive that she has kept over over decades. And eventually she she trusted me enough to let me um, to allow me to have access to the diaries and the family album um, that that I include um, in the book. And so part of the book analyzes published public writing, and part of it involves um, analyzing unpublished, intimate work. Um, And that's where I'm able to actually look at the differences between what people say to the public and what people say behind closed doors. Um, And that's been key to how I've, um, to the argument that I'm trying to make uh, about the, the constitutive mutability or um, the constitutive contradictions of of the family. Okay, so you opened the book talking about Carlos Octavio Bunge, and he was a fiction writer, but he was also a lifelong bachelor, and he wrote a lot about failed romances, yeah, right? Right, right, right. So he very much wanted to be known as a fiction writer, but none of his novels ever managed to have any public or critical success. He was kind of behind the times. When he was writing um, in the early 20th century, um, naturalist fiction, so a sort of realist diagnosis of contemporary social ailments, as it was, um, was no longer in fashion. So, so he was kind of writing in a mode, a novelistic mode that was outdated, and he was never able to quite put together anything um, that resonated with, with a broad public. And that's precisely what literary critics at the time accused him of. They, they accused him of being in poor taste, um, which was a very damning 
indictment uh, for someone at, at the time. What was uh, in poor taste about his writing? I guess? <laughs> the, really, what was in poor taste was was that the the family romances in his novels failed in in the nineteenth century in Latin America. Um, fiction was an essential tool of nation building, and in addition to newspapers and politics, most politicians, in most elite politicians in Latin America were also artists in some way. Uh, fiction writers uh, was, was top uh, on, on, the, on the list of, of things that people were, were doing in addition to politics. And so you would see uh, people writing novels that were intending to create a national culture. And in those novels, of the mid-19th and late 19th century, it was almost expected that the novel present an example for what the nation could be, for what was an ideal couple between um, different classes or members of the same class or between different ethnic groups or members of the same ethnic group. Um, This is what uh, Doris Summer calls the foundational fictions, the foundational fictions of Latin America. And you know, Carlos Octavio and his novels never quite provides an acceptable ending, an acceptable ending that would allegorically represent a future for Argentina. And so he was um, accused of being in poor taste because his novels didn't provide an ideal future uh, for the nation in a time when that was deemed politically necessary. Can you go into one or two examples of his novels and how they were against the grain in terms of family relationships? Sure, sure, sure. Um, So one example that I look at in in the first chapter of the book is his novel La Novela de la Sangre, or The Novel of Blood. I like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, in that novel... It, it's set in the mid-19th century, although he published in, in 1903, and it's set during a period of political turmoil when there was a dictator in Argentina named Juan Manuel de Rosas. So Juan Manuel de Rosas was the dictator in the 1850s, in the 18, 1835 to 1852, and this novel follows two star-crossed lovers— and the male character gets separated from, from the woman he loves, whose name is Blanca. And uh, he gets separated. And in the end, the novel brings them back together. And rather than providing an example of reconciliation, um, the protagonist says that he does not want to or he cannot marry her, he cannot be with her, and and he rejects um, her desire to be with him. This is the first ending of the novel that was deemed in poor taste. What happened, which is super interesting, is that after that, after the first reviews of his novel, Carlos Octavio rewrote the ending. And in the second edition, he changes entirely the ending to provide precisely a model of um, national futurity, as I call it. And so in the second ending, the the protagonist, Regis, and uh, Blanca, his wife, end up getting back together. 
um, and forming an ideal union. And that is the type of uh, example that national culture and national literature needed, uh, according to the elite at the time. A, a family romance that ended with the possibility of children among the same class of white children, because in the first edition, in fact, Blanca had uh, a child by an Italian man, which in the late 19th century, the Italians were vilified in Argentina as um, degenerate um, people. And so the fact that she had had a child with an Italian man was a blemish uh, on, on her name and reputation. And so in the second edition, the child that they had dies and is removed from the picture. So this is an example of, I call it straightening out a queer novel um, and, and how literary criticism actually provided the impetus for Carlos Octavio to change the ending of his novel to satisfy the demands for national literature. Actually, Charles Dickens kind of had to do that, but his was more of a populist anger because he was one of the first writers who appealed to the lower classes because he was serialized. Right. <laughs> and so, but it, it's kind of ironic that, like, in the 1800s, in either direction, you got authors to change their endings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's curious in, in, in that the people who are criticizing him were members of the same class, mm -hmm. but they were a little bit younger. One of them, uh, Manuel Galvez, ended up being his brother-in-law. And so there's a there are differing visions for what national culture should be like. And Carlos Octavio was interested in tradition and in re and basing the present on the past. And the people who were criticizing him were saying that um, we needed to, or that Argentina needed to focus more squarely on creating new reading publics so that um, the growing middle class could have an example of the types of families, the types of relationships, the types of love um, that would then lead to a prosperous future for the nation. I've always wondered this, but often people who are elites and maybe even right-leaning seem to be a little too obsessed about the proper family. Oh, yeah. Do you have any theories on that? <laughs> uh, I, have, I have many theories about that. Uh, you know, why, why, like, the thing about the family is that if it were so natural, it would not need to be so carefully guarded all the time. If it were so easy to have the perfect family, we would not need so many incentives. We would not need so many um, restrictions, so, so, so much disciplining around bodies and desires. And, you know, Foucault talks about this a lot in, in, in the history of sexuality. But, you know, for me, um, one of the things that I try to do in the book is read the family um, for what it actually says. Um, and the family is a site of so many contradictions, and it's in obscuring those contradictions that conservatives or people of conservative political ideologies are attempting to misdirect, I would say, or attempting to obscure the fact that 
the family is always changing. The family is itself a contingent political, social, and cultural phenomenon. It is not a, a timeless structure, right? And, and so thus the book is also interested in questioning anthropological accounts of the family, um, so like in, you know, Claude Levi-Strauss and, and, and structural anthropology. Um, I'm not interested in, in looking at the family as a timeless structure that is the foundation of society, but rather in looking at how the family must always accommodate new desires, new bodies, new uh, forms of, of loving. And that's what we see um, by looking at the vast archive of, of this particular family, um, is that they were constantly looking for ways out of their own normative family. And so the normative family um, is not something that just happens. It has to be carefully guarded. It has to be cultivated. It has to be taught. Um, in, in one of the chapters, I talk about how public education was set up specifically to teach children how to love the nation as they loved their family. And so you see this a correspondence between um, teaching children to be patriotic and teaching children um, the value of family life. Yeah, and that kind of need for revisionism is very interesting. I'm glad you kind of led the segue. So <laughs> can we talk about the two sisters, Juliana Wait, Julia or Julia, 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 and Del, Delfina, Delfina, and their letters to each other, and how they were trying to, how they felt restricted with their, I guess, family arrangement. Yeah. Um, so, I was able to to access some of the unpublished manuscript diaries um, that were written by Delfina Bunge, and this is a, a, a fascinating and unique archive in. Latin American culture, in which two sisters, Julia and Delfina, both wrote a diary over an extended period of time, but actually shared the diary with the other sister and wrote about having read the sister's diary. So the diary is not just a text that is for my eyes only in this case. It's a diary that was shared and forms an interface, is what I call it, um, through which sis the sister comes to be understood as such. And so in these diaries, you see in particular Delfina questioning her role in the family. She, she says in, in several instances, what, what she'll do in the diaries is she'll sort of transcribe a conversation uh, after after it happened. And so she'll say, today I was talking with my mother and I told my mother that I never want to get married. I'm happy being a, a spinster for my whole life. And my mom said this and she and then my brother said this. And, and so she sort of recounts these conversations that, that she's had. And I found that fascinating in that she was a member of the elite. Um, her father was a member of the Supreme Court. Her mother was from an, a, a wealthy family. Um, they were very prominent intellectually and economically. And yet here she was saying that she didn't want to carry on this tradition. She was not interested in that. She wanted to be a writer and she wanted to be a musician. And 
the person who really picked up on this was Carlos Octavio. And Carlos Octavio, at one point, invites Delfina to go live with him. And she writes about this in her diaries, how her brother, realizing that she was dissatisfied with the life that she was leading, offered to provide her with a space where she could be what she wanted to be. And I call this a queer home. It's a queer home because it breaks the model of patriarchal governance of families. This was a moment in which um, men still had control over women's finances. Women couldn't vote still and could hardly leave the house. And here, Carlos Octavio was saying, it's okay if you never get married. He himself never got married and is famously now described as as being queer, um, even though that term didn't exist at the time, um, and is offering to create a new space, a different type of home in which sibling cohabitation or sibling support, mutual support, would be the basis of their hogar, as the, the term in, in Spanish, right, their home. And I found that fascinating because she actually doesn't take him up on the offer. She writes about him offering to let her live with him. But in the end, she decides not to take him up on the offer. And just a few years later, she ends up marrying a man named Manuel Galvez, who was a, a novelist himself and a, a member of the right-wing Catholic nationalist movement um, around 1910 to 1920. So she becomes much more stridently Catholic as she gets older. And, and yet, in the early years of her life, in her late teens and early 20s, she was very clear about not wanting to get married. Um, and I found that to be uh, an example of the types of fluctuations that are, as I argue, constitutive of the family. That's, it's not an aberration. Um, but rather it's part and parcel with how the family comes to be understood as such. And in that context, I guess a woman would have, in order to be moral, would have required to have that husband, right? right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, both of the sisters understood themselves to be part of a class that demanded that they be displayed um, and they, the, the term for this was to be a, a niña, a, a young girl. Uh, but to be a niña in the late 19th century meant to be a young woman of the elite who was um, on display or who was in society. And Julia, the other sister, writes extensively because she was very much uh, invested in the social life. Uh, she saw herself as, as very glamorous, and she was. Um, and she relished the the galas and the balls and and the um, the social occasions. And the sisters write to each other or write in their diaries um, about the differences um, in their opinions about being put on display. Delfina, the writer, never wanted to be put on display. Julia, the socialite, loved it. Um, and in, in fact, there's one there's one case that I, that I find really funny um, where Delfina 
secretly wrote an essay, and this was scandalous at the time, so she secretly wrote an essay in French and sent it to uh, a magazine in Paris called Femina. What was the essay about? The essay was about the young woman of the new century. So in the essay, uh, Delfina sort of cobbles together impressions of her friends and sh- and through this composite she's she's arguing that the young woman of the new century this being the 20th century has the ability to be whatever she wants she can be uh, an artist she can be a painter she can be she can be free um, as long as she maintains a sense of morality and so the content of, of the essay was not particularly controversial. The fact that it was a woman of the elite that was writing it was scandalous. Why? It was scandalous because to be a woman writer was as poorly viewed as being an actress or <laughs> as being any woman who worked, right? Women were not allowed to work. And the fact that she was putting her name out there in public was scandalous um, because it went against women's, uh, the view that women had to be restricted to the home, right? To be the angel of the home, as as um, w- the phrase uh, was, was commonly used at, in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So the funny thing is, so she writes this, this, this essay, and then a letter comes to the house uh, from from Paris, saying that she had won honorable mention in this essay competition. And the family sees this letter and they don't know what to do because it's she did it without their permission. And then word gets out, even though the text was published in French and under a pseudonym, <laughs> uh, the word gets out. And then Manuel Galvez, the man who she would eventually marry, Uh, comes to their door and knocks on the door and says, I heard that there's a new literata, a a literary woman uh, that I would like to meet. And uh, I heard her name is Delfina. And Delfina uh, answers the door and says, yes, it's me. And that's how they actually meet, is, is Manuel Galvez was seeking to publish her essay in Argentina. And the family has to have a meeting. They have a meeting. And even though there were numbers, a number of of men who were public figures and were writers, it was unacceptable to them that a woman would be publicly identified as a writer. And so they decide that she can publish the essay, but still in French and still under a pseudonym. It does get published. And in the aftermath, Julia and their mother decide that they need Delphi- they need to show the world that Delfina is not, and this is a, a direct quote, a bicho raro, a strange animal. <laughs> <laughs> and so they make her go to the opera. She didn't want to go to the opera, but they make her go to the opera uh, so that people can see her in the way that she's supposed to be seen. That is, as a woman of the upper class, still motionless, watching opera, not as a writer. Um, and so in this is one of the instances in which the contradiction within the family is, what does it mean to be a woman? 
And Delfina is saying, I want to be a writer, but the family is saying that is unacceptable. And so we have this tension between propriety and publicity and between one's individual desires, Delfina's individual desires to be a writer and the collective need to, to maintain class cohesion. Um, and so this is one of the examples in which the family uh, disciplines the, the daughter, right? The family disciplines her by making her, by forcing her to make a public appearance. I sort of think of this as that, uh, in a way, Julia sort of becomes a publicity agent um, and wants Delfina to be seen uh, once again as a charming niña um, rather than as a scandalous writer. For me, the next chapter is really interesting because there was some debate about Escuela Normales turning all women into like a, a, a spinster. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So explain this debate and what it was about and what came about it. Yeah. So in the late 19th century in, in Argentina, Argentina actually has a very strong tradition of uh, public education. Universities are free in Argentina, and that is uh, according to the Constitution. And so public education has always been a very important part of, of life, of public life in Argentina. Um, and in the late 19th century, the debates um, that they were having were had to do with um, how to accommodate the waves of, of immigrant children, particularly Italian and Spanish immigrant children, um, that were coming. And one of the ways that the government sought to to deal with this was by one importing uh, women teachers, uh, many of whom came from the United States, and two creating teachers colleges or escuelas normales or normal schools. And so, normal schools were training centers for particularly women uh, to become teachers, and there was a lot of emphasis put on the maternal value uh, of women as teachers and how women could teach these young immigrant children how to love the nation, how to become patriotic. Um, but at the same time, the normal school was a place that was populated by, according to some, too many women. And that because there were too many women in this place, uh, in these schools, there was the possibility that some of these women might either be lesbians or might never get married, which in a way that's saying the same thing. Um, and so the teachers' colleges were sort of essential to the nation and the nation building project, but also a source of anxiety for the nation because it was a place in which women exerted a, a modicum of autonomy, able to earn uh, a wage, even a modest one, able to move uh, to different parts of the country without uh, male supervision or without you know, the, the supervision of a husband. And so this is another place in which public education is essential to nation building, but at the same time, a source of anxiety for the nation because it is a place in which women are less supervised, are less under... Um, the the patriarchal, the eye of patriarchal domination. I think Carlos wrote an essay about that, right? Yes, he. So, in addition to being a fiction writer, he he wrote numerous book length 
treatises and and essays, and he was also um, a jurist and and taught law at the University of Buenos Aires. Um, but one of his first big publications was about education, um, and he was sent to Europe um, in 1899 to study European school systems, and he came back and wrote this report on European schooling. And that became uh, his first book um, about education. And he went on to expand that that book over the course of his life. Um, and one of the chapters that he ended up adding was about women teachers and, and about the role of women in uh, secondary education. He comes down in favor of the idea that, that women should be educated, but it's always under a sort of tutelary model. He's, he's always invested in, despite himself, in his own personal life, seeking to break models of domesticity and normativity. When he writes for the public, he's always invested in maintaining the status quo. He's invested in granting women a certain degree of autonomy, but only insofar as it serves the best interest of the nation. For me, the biggest thing to notice is the way they keep tying in the family with the nation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I try to do that. Someone else might read this differently, but my interest is in trying to read the various ways in which the concept of the family emerges out of the dialogue between these various forms of discourse. So one example um, from the, the, the chapter about schooling is that Carlos Octavio, in addition to this, this book on education, he wrote a, um, a textbook um, that was supposed to be for high school students, and it was called Nuestra Patria, Our Homeland or Our, our Fatherland. And he published it to coincide with the Argentine centennial in 1910. And in that textbook, he includes a section that's dedicated to uh, the child. And it's a, it's a very weird section. So the, the rest of the book is excerpts from famous writers, geography, um, sort of standard things. And then there's this one section that's about childhood. And rather than a study of childhood, what he does is he actually takes his own memoirs. He writes his own memoirs as a child and inserts that as the example for all children. So this is an, an example of how he's putting himself in, the, in his own textbook as an example for all children to follow. And he describes himself as having been fascinated by the clergy, and and with great detail, he he describes himself being fascinated with the cloaks that clergymen wore, um, also being fascinated with the military and how the straight lines that the men were marching in, and he was terrified of them, and and, and a number of other fascinations that he has, and then he starts to extrapolate from his own experience and say um, that this experience of childhood is the experience of all children, and. I think that this is, on the one hand, it's absurd, but on the other hand, it's really interesting in, in terms of how is it that he's trying to mold an entire country in his own image, in an, in an image of a member of the elite 
of Germanic background and to say that the feelings that he had as a child are so normal as to be expected of all children going forward. And now, I think when I put it like that, it sounds absurd, but in his thinking, um, this was a way to try to promote cohesion among uh, a diverse population as, as Argentina was becoming in, in the early 20th century. Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter. And Historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters. And that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised. It's historically.substack.com. But around that time, Argentina was also getting like a socialist anarchist movement. How did they, progressive leftists, write about family or was it was this like a bourgeois concern? <clears throat> uh, that's so the the turn of the 19th to the 20th century is is fascinating precisely because it's the moment in which different models of social life, economic life, family life are being proposed from radically different perspectives. The anarchist movement um, was growing, particularly in Argentina, because of the large population of, of Italian immigrants um, that, that were already there. The socialist movement was also growing. And so you see these ideological conflicts about what family was supposed to mean. Now, the anarchists would see, and there, were, there are numerous examples from this, from the, the River Plate region, numerous examples of what was called at the time the free love movement, El Amor Libre, in which um, women were refusing to be married as, as part of an anarchist platform, in which uh, monogamy was being questioned as part of an anarchist platform. And yet at the same time, you have these um, liberal, with a capital L, ideologues proposing a continuity between the colonial period and modernity. So the, the bourgeois or the elite is so concerned with these new family models that are being proposed that they actually flee the city center. This is when in Argentina, the, the rich start to leave the old colonial downtown and start to move to what are now the, the neighborhoods of Palermo and El Belgrano in the, in the north uh, of, of the city. And this is when you have tenement housings growing, and, and this, is, this is where the anarchist and the socialist movements are formed in these tenement housings, uh, conventichos, as they're called in, in Argentina. And so through art, through literature, and through politics, these varying and competing family models are being expressed, and the consequences are, are high. The stakes are high. In, in this particular moment because the future of the nation was at stake. And uh, people like the Bunge family were invested in maintaining the status quo 
in public, while at the same time in private, they were questioning the very things that they were predicating for other people. That is a very common theme among the right, um, even in America, like that the senator from Idaho, I believe. Oh, was, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's an interesting, timeless thing that happened. So maybe there is nothing natural about the family. <laughs> I mean, no, uh, there isn't. But the thing, the thing is, I would say, is, is it's not so much... I'm not so much interested in exposing the hypocrisy of conservatism as I am looking squarely at how the family itself is a site of conflict, contestation, fragility, and, and fluctuation. When we, when we think of the family, we think of it as this timeless structure. We think of it as ordained by God, at least in the, in the Western Christian tradition. And that covers up so much debate, dissent, um, that goes on constantly within that very structure or within that very uh, mode of, of relating uh, to other people. So yeah, at, at, at the core, what I'm saying in the book is that the family is not and has never been natural. It has always been a cultural construct and it continues to modify itself according to political ideologies, according to the political expediency of its own uh, mobilization for whatever political ideology needs to use it at that time. Even among LGBT politics, right, we see how the family becomes mobilized in order to gain uh, political rights. The whole thing about gay marriage is an appeal to family values just from a quasi-liberal perspective, when in reality that's just reinscribing the domain of the state in intimate relationships. So I'm not interested in, in the ways in which the family is timeless. I'm interested in how the family has to always incorporate new modes of relating. And that is its flexibility is actually why it has been able to be mobilized by so many different forms of, of political and social critique. Does the family, idea of a family, need to exist even? I mean, if it weren't family, it might be something else. Um, but, you know, at, in the, at the end of the day, we're talking about how people relate. And so another term that people use uh, is relations, relationality. And from, from different traditions, so let me give you an example. In... I'm Cherokee, and so in the Cherokee tradition, we understand that kinship is not just something that we have with other people, but also with the ancestors and with the spiritual world and with the land and with four-legged creatures and with nature, um, which we don't necessarily understand as nature per se, right, but, but as living sentient beings. And that isn't necessarily family. That's reciprocal relation. And so if it weren't the family, um, it might be something else. But I think that 
family as it has been mobilized by Christian um, ideologies over time in particular um, has been used to justify the oppression of women, racism, um, genocide, right? All of this in the name of maintaining a type of idealized family. So there's nothing in the family that I, that I see as inherently valuable. That being said, am I interested in having ethical, reciprocal, consensual relationships with other, with other human and other than human creatures? Yes, absolutely. I need a social network. I need a, a constellation of kin. But does that have to be the family? I don't think so. And in the fifth chapter, actually, the segues into that, you kind of talk about where Carlos Bunhe writes about our America and kind of racializes idea of promiscuity oh, and, yeah. and, 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 and gets a little eugenicist. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, talk about that. So I think, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but Carlos Octavio is, uh, is super racist. All of them were super racist. And, and the point of departure here is, is that we're talking about people who existed because of white supremacist ideologies, because of the benefits of colonialism, um, who were actively denigrating African and indigenous communities, Afro-diasporic and indigenous communities um, in Argentina and, and across Latin America. That being said, if, if we fail to critique white supremacy simply on the fact that it is white supremacist, then we're missing an opportunity to understand how it functions and thus rest it of its normative power. So when I talk about Carlos Octavio's book, Nuestra America, which is an essay about the history of racial mixing or miscegenation in in both Spain, he goes all the way back to the Visigoths in, in medieval Spain, all the way to, to his contemporary period in, in the late 19th century, he's clearly invested in justifying white supremacy. The thing, the thing about the way that he, he goes about it is for him in the early 20th century, Argentina is undergoing a lot of political dysfunction. Um, there are you know, rising tensions between socialists, anarchists, and more traditional uh, political factions. There are concerns about language. Uh, there, there are concerns that there are too many Italian speakers in Argentina, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so he's trying to find a way out of the determinist trap that says to him from European eugenics that because Latin America is a predominantly mixed-race population, it is inherently um, lesser than pure European countries. And for him, this is problematic because if the majority of the population in Latin America is biologically determined to be inferior, then they will never achieve the greatness of Europe. And for a nation-building project, that's kind of a downer, right? So he's trying to find a way to say that even though the, the majority of communities in, in Latin America are of mixed ethnic ancestry, 
that doesn't mean that they are uh, historically or or geographically uh, determined to forever be less competent than or less developed than uh, than people in Europe. While he's doing this, he has to prop up his own whiteness and he has to denigrate those who are of greater indigenous and African ancestry. So it becomes a way of saying, we may be a little bit mixed race, but not so much as to make us degenerate. <laughs> degenerate like those Indians over there or degenerate like those African people over there. It's like he can't be purely European because he's Latin American, because his family was born, because he was born in Latin America. And yet he also wants to distance himself from racialized communities in, in Latin America. So this is, this is the sort of fine line that he's trying to walk. But, you know, that's, these are minor points, right? In, 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 the big, in the grand scheme of things, he's absolutely advocating for the extermination of indigenous peoples and of peoples of, of African descent. Absolutely. That is the point of departure. What happens, what happens beyond that, um, I think, is something that we need to be able to understand across Latin America, which is how whiteness functions, how it develops as a concept, and how it is wielded, like the family, as a, a form of um, institutionally privileging um, colonial structures. So in that sense, my, my aim is not necessarily to critique his racism because I take that as a point of departure. I take that for granted. Um, what I'm interested in, in that particular uh, text is how he's constructing whiteness um, because I think that that is also uh, uh, an aspect of, of Latin American culture that um, that is often left out uh, of, of critiques. Oh, Absolutely. And it has detrimental effects to politics. Like, for example, just a few months ago, most people did not realize the whole idea of the Bolivian elites and the Crescenos. And, yeah. and I think they do. we do need to talk about a lot of this because their identity of whiteness is different, but we still need to understand it in order to actually understand what is justice and not support coups, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in recent cases in Ecuador and Bolivia and, and in Chile, one of the things they have in common is a claim to whiteness um, that is not actually expressed as such, but which has the function of of a claim on whiteness. Well, they claim that I mean for me with Bolivia it was obvious like for example Camacho said Bolivia is with Jesus and we don't want Pachamama anymore. Right. Like those are rejecting um indigenous values and propping up European values, right? But I would say just because just because someone says that they're Christian doesn't mean that they're not also identifying as mestizo Except, or as only white, right? So it's not the same. But Camacho 
actually was saying that the Pachamama will never be in the presidential palace. Again, like, right, yeah, right, right, right. He was ex- explicitly like, and he ripped out the Wipala. Yeah. So he's a far-right figure. Right. And I guess what I'm saying is is that anti-Indigenous politics is not necessarily exclusively white politics. It's It's whitening and it is privileging people who have benefited from white supremacy but it's it's not exactly the same as people saying we are white therefore we deserve to be leading the country it's it's framed in other ways it's framed as you're saying through catholicism as if mestizo and indigenous communities could also not be catholic um, as if Afro-diasporic communities were, had no claim on Catholicism. Um, and so it's coded in different ways. But, I, you know, obviously um, the, the right-wing coup in, in Bolivia is based in a fear of non-white majority. It's based in the same type of fear that led Carlos Octavio and Julia and Delfina to see in the family the only, a last, the last place in which they could be safe. This is the same thing. This is, this is how history repeats. And I would say also the, this appeal to the family is, is even more prominent in recent discussions around what's called gender ideology in Latin America. And we see this in Ecuador. We see this in Bolivia. We see this in Peru. We see this in Chile. We see this in Argentina and particularly in Brazil, um, where it was where Bolsonaro has been talking about gender, gender ideology. And that was one of the things that got him elected. Gender ideology is, is a sort of throwback to a moment in which hierarchy ruled and people all knew their place. Um, where women knew that their place was in the home. And so right-wing ideology in this sense is connecting religion, uh, gender roles, and normative sexuality through the axis of the family, right? The family serves as, as a sort of fulcrum to connect these, these different ideological strands. And of course, whiteness is key to one of those, even though... In, in many cases, it's a sort of whiteness that is filtered through religious doctrine or economic superiority or if whiteness isn't exactly the same as it functions in the United States. Like I said, it is very important. Uh, I, I guess sometimes I don't like the use of the term whiteness mm. because it can be confusing to yeah. people. Yeah. But I understand what you mean. It's a way of stratifying society. Right. Right. I mean, I, I think in, in a sense, whiteness is mobile also, right? And we see this in particular with cases of, of immigration, right? Someone who is imagined or imagines themselves to be white in Latin America all of a sudden comes to the United States and is no longer white. How did that happen, right? And that has to do with language, accent, with place of origin, with other f- uh, f- phenotypical features that people read onto you, right? And this is why um, uh, transnational dialogues about race are so crucial, because race is also mobile. Race is contingent. 
It is not a singular structure that applies to all people at the same time everywhere. Yeah, it's mobile. It's very confused. It's very differently applied in each society, and it's very unique to each society in which they apply. Right, right, and and the histories, the colonial histories, are are what matter in in that sense, right? Because if in the United States the division was much more stringent between indigenous communities and white communities, and particularly between black and white communities. In Latin America, um, because of the particular ways in which Spanish and Portuguese colonialism worked, there were still divisions, but they didn't function in the same way. It was a more stratified um, or uh, people people will call Mexico in particular a pigmentocracy um, in which it's not so much a type of political identity that that one claims, but rather the closeness to an idealized white subject that you become or that you are. Um, and so I think this is also one of the differences between, say, Argentina, which has a majority European immigrant population, uh, because of the genocidal practices of the mid-19th century, um, and communities like Mexico and Peru, which have a lo- much, much longer tradition of um, racial mixing and uh, a, a longer history of um, indigenous presence um, within the national dialogue than in, say, Argentina or like certain parts uh, of, of Chile, right? Chile imagines itself as a, a white or mestizo nation, while the Mapuche communities in, in the South have long resisted and in fact have never um, ceded their territorial rights um, in, in the South of Chile. Before we go, do you have any ending comments? How do people reach you? Uh, you a- anything else to like mention? Uh, sure. I well, so this, in terms of this book, um, you know, I'm I'm hoping that the book allows us to think through what the family means and what the family could mean. In the epilogue of the book, I, I try to provide a sort of roadmap for. Um, the juncture of Latin American studies, queer studies, and decolonizing uh, the family or decolonizing uh, queer studies. And I think that that is going to be an important discussion to be had in, in, the, in the upcoming years. And I'm happy to, to hear what people have to say about it. You can reach me um, on Twitter at Pepe Pierce. And yeah, I, I think that um, hopefully... If people can can read the book with an eye for not only what the, the the historical connection that it's making, but also for for theoretically what it's proposing as possible for the family, then then we'll see that that it's also proposing a method for reading the family, not just a history of one particular family. Thank you so much for joining us, and we really appreciate it. Thank you. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.